Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by The Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Hey all, welcome to today's episode of Tapping Into the Human, where we have Brennan Little, who served as the inaugural policy director of the Boston's Mayor's Office of Recovery Services from 2016 to 2021. Um, This is the office that was responsible for coordinating substance use recovery um, efforts all across the city, and he is currently a freelance consultant, writer, and music producer. Lots going on. So welcome, Brennan. Thanks for uh, being on the podcast. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself? I know I was sort of going through um, and trying to see if at a local level, any offices were dealing with recovery services. And really the only one that I found was the Boston's office, which is cool because that's, I have a lot of family there, but um, tell me a little bit about you and then how you end up getting to that office and starting it. Sure. So I kind of had a non-traditional path to my job. Um, And uh, so I was born and raised in the city of Boston to a low-income family, single mom. Um, My dad left the family when I was a baby, uh, alcoholic. So I have addiction and mental health issues all throughout my family. Um, And very early, I started getting into substance use um, as a way to kind of cope with trauma and, you know, just a lot of stuff going on at home. So when I was 11, I started using um, drugs and alcohol. Um, and by the time I was 13, I was arrested for, you know, petty crimes, 14 years old again. Um, and, um, I was court ordered to long-term rehab, uh, in New Hampshire, actually, um, when I was 14 years old. So I spent about a year in the custody of, uh, social services, the the department of children and families here in uh, Massachusetts. And that was really where I first started to kind of get into recovery and understand recovery. And I took it seriously because I knew my family was um, really in the throes of it, as was mm-hmm. I at a very, very young age. Right. So that all happened and, um, you know, struggled throughout my teens with in and out of sobriety and in and out of homelessness and stability. Um, but by the time I was 18, I kind of had enough and got into recovery of my own volition and got uh, utilized 12-step programs to get my recovery. Um, And then from there, I just really knew that I wanted to work with people. I wanted to work with kids, especially I wanted to help people. I knew that that's the career I wanted to do. Honestly, I wasn't good at really anything else other than, you know, music and helping people. So I just started to do that. And then over the years, built up some experience, especially in the area of high risk uh, court and gang involved youth. I spent several years doing that here in Boston. And then um, I started working for a guy named Marty Walsh, who was running for mayor um, at the time. And he was openly in recovery and shared his recovery story uh, everywhere. And we just, um, together with other people, we created these policy teams to really think about issues in the city. It was very grassroots level. And one of the things, yeah. And then one of the things that Mayor Walsh or then candidate Walsh really wanted to do was create an office of recovery services to really prioritize substance use and recovery efforts in the city, which hadn't been done before. Um, Prior to him becoming mayor, 
it was the least funded bureau within the health commission. Um, Unfortunately, was, no surprise. Yeah, exactly. No surprise. And this was all happening 2013, 2014, when the opioid epidemic was really starting to skyrocket. Um, so, so yeah, so, and then I just kind of fell into it. You know, I was doing my high-risk youth work, but being in recovery myself long-term, really caring about the issue, I just became the lead on helping to create the office, which was a year-long process. Um, we just kind of looked at to assess the needs. What would an office like this look like? As you said, we were the first municipal recovery office. So it's like, there's no blueprint. It's kind of like, let's figure this out. Right. And uh, a year later, it was just my thing. It was the thing I was the most excited about. I feel like it found me. I didn't find it. Um, and from there, we started up and, you know, built this the next five years or history. So from 2016 to 2021, um, I worked as the policy director, helping to build up the office and, um, you know, and then with COVID being what it was and me having two small children, it was time for me to kind of hang out with my little ones a little bit. So I, I took a, uh, I left the job in 2021. And since then I've been doing consulting and serving on some, some boards and councils and stuff. So, so that's the, that's the trajectory. Yeah, no, that that's amazing. What a story. And I, I think obviously congrats on your recovery, but I think it's amazing. And um, I mean, we were sort of talking about before we were recording, but it, you know, it fuels your, your fire, you know what I mean? It gives you purpose and be able to give back. So um, no, yeah. that's amazing. And while you were there, what did it look like standing up an office that had never been done before? You said there was no blueprint. Did you guys get any pushback about establishing such an office? Like, I mean, I'll, I used to work on Capitol Hill and I'll tell you, um, I've been trying to sort of understand the land, landscape um, policy and legislative wise. And there's a lot of pushback. People don't like this. There's a lot of stigma. So what was it even like standing it up? Yeah, so, so uh, you know, part of it was, one thing we were grateful for is one, we live in a state that really is serious about substance use and funding. You know, Massachusetts is very progressive, um, even though, of course, there's lots of things to work on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was already pretty good infrastructure in place around a continuum of care for people. And then within the Health Commission, you know, while we were the first municipal office, there were amazing people who've been working in the Bureau of, you know, the, the Substance Use Bureau for many, many years. And instead of us coming down kind of top down to, you know, tell them what to do, we went and worked in the bill, you know, we didn't work at City Hall, you know, the director and myself, you know, we worked uh, above the needle exchange, above the access to care programs in the area called Mass and Cass, which is kind of like the skid row, essentially, of Boston, okay. where there's a lot of services and, and people on the street who are struggling. Um, so, you know, and we really just got there. And the biggest thing we did was we definitely got some skeptical looks, like who are these people coming in from the right. mayor's office, right? And right. which is totally understandable. But the re the thing, you know, we really tried to do is get in there and just say, how can we fix problems that you have? You know, what do you need? What do you need? And that was what, you know, in my assessment, that's what we spent five years doing was, um, you know, going to the people on the ground who were doing the work, asking what they needed. And one of the first examples was, um, Sarah Mackin, who's an amazing harm reductionist who runs the needle exchange program, harm reduction program for the city, you know, she said, we park our outreach van downtown, but we get tickets from the city. Oh so my here's God. A, <laughs> so here's, here, here's a city program getting ticketed by the city. 
wow. and it's a seemingly easy little thing, but it, you know, that can really mess them up. Right. So there was no mechanism to kind of smooth something like that up. So, you know, I went and spoke, did all the bureaucratic red tape stuff I needed to do at city right. hall. And then eventually, you know, we got a little sign, a, a city street sign that they're allowed to park there from these hours to these hours. To me, that was like, that was the beginning. That was literally the first thing that I worked on. And, and it's a good kind of, um, it's an emblematic of what we tried to do. Which exactly. Like cut, through, cut through red tape, help to make things, you know, easier, prioritize the issue. That's really just a matter of like a bully pulpit and, and you know, making it easier for people to do the real work. So right. that's kind of what we, we tried to do. No, that's great. And what were some of, talk to me about some of the sort of major accomplishments that you guys were able to do, especially while you were there. Yeah. So as we were there, you know, again, so 2016 to 2021, just astronomical numbers of overdoses, deaths, um, COVID-19, just, you know, all these, these really complex challenges. Um, so, but one of the first things we did was we created a program called 311 for recovery services. So, um, for people to get access treatment, you know, there's different helplines, there's a state helpline, different numbers, and um, but everybody in Boston uses 311 for basic municipal services. To get, their trash didn't get picked up, you know, their, their street didn't get plowed. So we wanted to make sure that we connected the recovery continuum services to 311. So that's something that we did right out the gate, which really kind of helped, um, you know, prioritize access for everybody. And then past that, you know, a lot of what we did was we, the access to care program, which is a program called PATHS, which they're basically like navigators who get people to the level of care that they need when they're ready to get into recovery. You know, they had a staff of about five or six people. We tripled that over the, the five years, more than tripled that. Wow. Um, we created a street outreach team for the first time, which was, I think, the last I, I remember was about 16 to 18 people out on the street engaging with people. We created a mobile sharps team, which goes around the city and picks up needles um, from 311 calls. Uh, and then we created an engagement center, which is was really one of the kind of the hallmark or one of the bigger projects of the um, last few years, which was people were on the street um, in the Mass and Cass area, which is it's called Mass and Cass because it's at the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. It's kind of this industrial area right at the gateway entrance of Boston. And there's Boston Medical Center, which is the, the city's hospital for the poor. There's several homeless shelters. Um, the city's needle exchange and access to care program are there. It's this very service rich area. But because of that, there's also a lot of people on the street. There can be you know, mm. trash, debris, um, some violence. So it's kind of like a challenged area. But what we did was we created a space for people to be an engagement center. So prior to this, this program opening up, there was no place for people to just exist and just have some dignity, get out of the elements, charge their phones, right. you know, get on a computer. And they were misusing other public spaces. So misusing the libraries or misusing bus stations or whatever. So um, that's something that I think was really a big foray into harm reduction and really prioritizing harm reduction as a city right. um, where, you know, Boston can be a little puritanical and and, and still very much that way. Um, but I think that over the years, we really tried to lean into harm reduction and um, supporting drug users and meeting them where they're at, as opposed to trying to kind of fit them into a, a box. 
Exactly. No, that that's so important. And congrats on all that. That sounds like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I was looking at different uh, definitions for what harm reduction is. And one of them is just radical empathy. And the other one is meeting people where they're at, right? Like not yeah. trying to, as you said, fit them in a box, just trying to help them and meet them with where they're at. So I think that that's really important. Um, I'm sure, you know, obviously you have experience in the policy realm, but probably being boots on the ground for five years, you learned even more about the red tape what do you think is the biggest barrier right now um, for people getting access to treatment? Do you think it's like the stigma? Do you think uh, that informs legislation and that's why there's so many policy barriers? Like, what do you think the biggest barrier right now is? Yeah, I mean, it depends where you are too, you know, in the country. And because I, I, I think that there's some places where it's like jail is the only treatment there is, you know what I mean? <laughs> like treatment, um, right. which I don't, I don't think jail is treatment, but I mean, um, you know, it's this really interesting thing. I, I don't know because, you know, in Boston, like right now we have, you know, when I first started um, and when we first started this office, there were not enough detox beds mm. to get, you know, to get people, but like the state as a combination of the city and state and all these great entities, they put a ton more online and like, you can get a detox bed right now. Like that's not the problem. So it's not, an, it's not a, it's not a factor of like, is there access to level of care is to me the biggest thing is we need to do a lot more on the front end harm reduction meeting people where they're yes. at non-judgmentally and then we need to do a lot more on the back end so which is making sure that people have meaningful opportunities for work for advancing themselves for housing um and that's the big the big issue because what happens is somebody will get into that you know plentiful detox bed that's there for them They'll, they'll get the drugs out of their system and then what? So then- Right, like what's there to do? They, yeah. Yes. And so in Massachusetts, you know, if you choose to take the kind of traditional continuum of care, you'll get into what's called like a TSS or a CSS bed, which is just like a holding before you get to a residential program. But that, especially with COVID, but even prior to COVID, it's like a bottleneck. So there's a lot of that, the services on the front and there's a lot of detox beds, but the more- you want to access one of those longer term solutions to stabilize yourself, get get right, there's less and less options. Um, so, you know, the state and the city have been trying to put more of those, those options online. But if you don't have faith that things are going to get better, you know, you're, you're, why get sober if you're, you know, like most people who are drug users and struggling, you have complex trauma you're from a low-income background or you're you don't have a lot of friends or meaningful connections in your life left because things have gone you know haywire so then you're working at dunkin donuts and you're stark raving sober just trying to get your life together you know that's that's a that's a crappy life so it can be really hard to kind of um find meaning and purpose so a lot of what we tried to do was um create small initiatives that try to counter that. So one of the things we did was we partnered with the Letters Foundation, which was a Warren Buffett and Doris Buffett's foundation. Um, and we gave people seed grants for stuff that they needed in early recovery and guaranteed them seamless transition to every level of care. So basically we viewed it, the, the foundation as like a loving family that of means. So, you know, if, if people needed help with their rent, if they needed to buy tools because they were a plumber, we'd give them, you know, we'd buy the tools for them Amazing. on their behalf. Yeah. Um, so this these things, and they're small monetary things, but A, they're not things that are usually covered by other government programs. B, 
they're just kind of like a testament of worth. They're like letting somebody know that, hey, we think you're valuable. You deserve furniture in your house. You deserve your first last security to be paid. You deserve to have these things. And the people who are, we started with a very small pilot, you know, about 10 people. And several of those people are doing very, very well now. One of them's working for the city, making really good money, been wow. housed for years, been in recovery for years. And, and the people we chose for this, this pilot were not the cream of the crop. You know, they were people who had many, many years homeless, really complex, some of them veterans, some of them complex trauma. So I think that, but that, that goes to show that I lived that too. Like, this is something that is not, the reason I knew to kind of do this was because that was my experience, right? Like the more I found when I was working at a restaurant and struggling and living paycheck to paycheck and bouncing from friend's couch to friend's couch, because I didn't have enough money, my life sucked <laughs> and it didn't feel great and it didn't feel like worth like it was worth living but when I started to find work that I cared about I had stable income I had a safe home my life got better so it's not rocket science you know yeah but I think that how do you strat how do you kind of formalize that and package that for each community is, is the challenge yeah no great point because like just the things you were talking about that are covered like tools if you're a plumber or rent it's like it's not the traditional things that you really think about in order to help someone but it makes such a difference you know it's yes. it's those small things that i think to and any other average person on the street who doesn't understand addiction they're like well why are you enabling and it's it's not like that right it's it's giving people the um tools that they need to just genuinely be on a level path so that they can like pursue and be happy and content with where they're at so i think that that's amazing um and sort of you were just talking a little bit about your own sort of history and recovery journey what really inspired you to um take it seriously and know you really wanted to start your path to recovery it seems like you were sort of forced in jail whatever like all these different mm. alternatives but you could have obviously chosen not to pursue a path of recovery obviously that must have been incredibly difficult so what was it for you that you were able to find that path and really keep pursuing it well a few things i think um you know one of the things that I was blessed with was I was able to go to a really good middle school that was really small and targeted as a Jesuit middle school for uh, poor kids in the city of Boston, super diverse school, super small. I was one of the only white kids in you know, my classes in, in Roxbury, which is a diverse neighborhood in the city. And, but the teachers were really, really caring, long hours. We were at school almost all day. So even though I had this really troubled adolescence, I had this, this really caring community that that was, that, right. that taught me about service to others that taught me about the value of education that taught me about the value of diversity um and that i think really instilled some really you know some some something in me that kind of when i was you know and the other the other thing was that i saw a lot of people die i saw a lot of people you know kind of either go like kids that were in my long-term rehab that i was at in new hampshire you know would get in a fight they'd call the police, they'd fight the police, then they'd go to prison, you know? So it's yeah. like, and this is a young kid, you know what I mean? And um, 17, 18 years old. And um, so I'd, I saw that like, oh, it's really dark. It's just really dark out there. And when I was homeless, I, you know, I was street homeless when I was a teenager. So I was like sleeping on sidewalks. So, you know, I just realized how quickly you can get to this really mm. low point. Um, so I think that I didn't want that to be my life. I knew that I had more to offer. I knew that I wanted to help people and live a life of service. Um, so then, you know, when I started 
you know, when you're younger, everything feels like forever. You know, I'm like, I can't go back. I was like, I can't go back to school. I'm 21. I'll be 25 by the time I'm done, you know? And like, and uh, my, my girlfriend, who's now my partner and my wife, she, at the time, she's like, you're going to be 25 anyway. Yeah, you might as well. Yeah. You're going to be 25 and working at a restaurant. or You're going to be 25 or a graduate of college. I was like, oh, that's a really good point. So, um, (laughs) so, you know, just a ton of care. My 12 step community was really supportive and again, I think that it doesn't, you know, this idea of like worth and, get, and people who are in early recovery having meaning, I think 12-step is one route to that, but it doesn't need to be for everybody. I think that whatever there is for people to find their community, but I think having that, you know, the first job that I had that was not at a restaurant or like as a clerk was I got through somebody who was in my 12-step program. He said, hey, there's this job that pays $20 an hour, you know, you know filing papers in an office. And to me, that was like, that was amazing, you know, yeah. and, and that kind of got me working just in an office. And then it's like step by step by step, I was able to really see that I didn't need to live this really, you know, bottom of the barrel life that I could be worth more and give more to my community. That, no, that's fantastic. And obviously, I'm, I'm happy that you had that 12 step community. And I think it's important, as you noted, like, um, I'm doing right now. Um, obviously, I didn't know anything about addiction. And I thought that this 12 step was the only, you know, way that you can get better for a lot of people. That's what they think. And right now I'm doing a podcast series on interviewing all the different representatives from all the different recovery groups so everyone could be educated on what exists. But I think the most important thing is that you have a community of people who get yep. it, who support you. So I think that that's fantastic. Um, and you were also telling me earlier that you were appointed by the Massachusetts governor to the Opioid Recovery and Remediation Fund Advisory Committee. That's a lot of words. It sounds amazing. Yes, it Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you're doing? Sure. So what that is, is um, all the states are filing lawsuits against opioid distributors and manufacturers who deceptively marketed opioids over the last 20 or so years. Um, And so Maura Healy is our uh, attorney general, and she's been kind of on the forefront of this fight um, suing. Um, She was one of the, I think, if not the only or the first um, attorney general in the U.S. to sue the Sackler family directly. Wow. Yeah. Um, so she's just really passionate, kind of, um, and really, really on top of this issue. So now the money's starting to come in from various lawsuits. So the state um, created this, the legislature created this this committee, which decides where the money goes. So um, basically, what we're doing is we're going to be deciding how to spend that money that's coming in on treatment and services for people. Um, So yeah, so the governor had three appointees, I was one of the appointees. Um, So I'm very excited and proud to be a part of that, because I think that it's a, it's a, it's a way to really just kind of have some sort of equity or, or justice, some semblance of it, and really kind of invest the money to, you know, communities were wrecked by a lot of those those companies so i think that it's really important to, to focus on yeah to be able to sort of give back then know that that's great yeah. so w- what's a timeline look like where you and the other um committee members trying to figure out what where the funding goes do you have ideas of where that should be going obviously your experience i'm sure greatly informs where you think that should be dispensed yeah so i mean luckily it's a really good crew of, of really informed smart people and I think we're kind of all on the same page so basically it's going to be coming in in chunks okay. um, over the over the years it's going to be a very long process um, but right now there's some money there I think there's uh, I think there's a, a few million I don't maybe to 10 million dollars um, 
but I don't remember. But um, really what we're trying to focus on is equity in recovery services, because that's a big issue that we've identified here yep. in Massachusetts and nationally, just how um, black and brown people are not accessing the same they don't have the same access, equitable access to recovery services and harm reduction services, more services for women, um, harm reduction programs for um, sex workers, people who are kind of struggling um, in that realm. Um, and, you know, just kind of trying to serve more underserved areas because Massachusetts people always think about Boston um, and Cambridge and Somerville and these bigger cities. Um, but, you know, there's a whole all Western Massachusetts, Central Massachusetts have just yep. been really hollowed out and struggling a lot. So making sure that the whole state is getting access Right, it's like a to, whole state approach know. versus just the city or city's approach. Yeah, which is cool for me because I've, I've previously been just very much focused on Boston and the city. But um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really good. And um, I think that, I think it's a good way to kind of, you know, may, have some restitution for the harm that was done. Agreed, agreed. And, you know, um, for anyone who hasn't watched it, I didn't know, of course, anything about the Sackler family or anything. And mm -hmm. I think what's really good is that uh, Hulu uh, series about the Sackler family and all those sort of things. So for anyone um, who's not sure what we're talking about, I recommend watching that series. Um, I think it's called Dope Sick to get an understanding of really like the trauma and the harm that was done. And unfortunately seem to be intentionally. Um, so I think it's really important for people to have a background in that. And as you said, some sort of justice and restitution. So um, no, that's amazing. And hopefully we'll be able to follow along all the good work that you guys are doing. Um, so I know you're no longer at the office and you're kind of focusing on family life, but you talked about being able to do music and writing and consulting. So tell us a little bit about all the cool stuff that you're doing now. Sure. So I've been a musician since I was 11 years old and writing music and wow. I was kind of doing it professionally for a while when I was 17, 18. And um, now I'm, I'm producing other artists and doing songwriting and I love it. It's always been the thing that just kind of cathartic helps me process stuff. Um, so yeah, so I love doing that and I'm always doing that no matter what I'm doing. And then right now I'm producing an artist named Annie Cheevers and her EP is going to be out um, in the next couple of months. Nice. So that's a really exciting and then, um, yeah, and then I've just been doing, you know, I've been super focused on family this past year, but I cannot stay out of the work too long. I'm already starting to like, you Get know, the and it's good. Yeah, yeah, it's good because my daughter, she's getting to the age where she'll be able to go to school and get, it's tough because she's about one and a half, so she can't get vaccinated yet. So mm. as soon as she can get vaccinated, we can start to explore like, you know, the, the, the world. daycares. And, yeah. yeah, so um but yeah, so I've been working um, with a couple different people, a um, couple different organizations. Um, one of them is the Rise Foundation, which is a, a, an incredible foundation focused on substance use. And they're a big funder of substance use uh, initiatives in the um, Massachusetts. And then also for the Center for Child Wellbeing and Trauma out of the UMass Medical School. Been working with them on some consulting to do some trainings. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of like the, I'm foray into this consultant world, um, but I'm really enjoying it so far. The flexibility is really good. Um, and it's also good for me because I have a lot of passions and I'm really fired up about stuff ranging from reentry to workforce development to right. you know, substance use. So it kind of gives me a, like a little bit of 
a lot a la carte stuff that yeah you get to dip your toe do. into all the different things which is great and and you deserve it and it's awesome that you can give back and kind of find your passion and do all that sort of great stuff so no i i super appreciate it i think this is great and i was going to say brendan what is sort of your last piece of advice for um anyone who's suffering to kind of understand that they can do more and um sort of a message of hope for somebody who's struggling with substance use yes. disorder yes um I think the biggest thing is that to not to believe the good voices in your head, not the bad voices in your head. And it's very simplistic, but um, but I think that somebody who's struggling kind of knows what I'm talking about. You know, I think that um, when people who struggle from substance use disorder, it, there's a lot of negative talk. You know, most of us come from traumatic backgrounds. Most of us have experienced a lot of adverse childhood experience, poverty. Um, heartbreak loss and just to let you know that there is a way through that and um, the the key to it is finding a good community being easy on yourself but also challenging yourself not to be to always be in that sweet spot of discomfort so you don't want to be so uncomfortable that you're freaking out and having panic and breaking down but you don't also want to be so comfortable that you're not advancing yourself so find that sweet spot of discomfort find a community that's genuinely caring and supportive, find people who are a couple steps ahead of you where you wanna be um, and latch onto them, ask them for advice, get into therapy if you can, and then find something to do for your body, be it yoga, meditation, exercise. To me, that's like my holy trinity is like, mm. you know, some sort of body or meditation, some, something body-based because trauma is body-based. Uh, a social community of recovery people um, and then just you know really thinking about um, therapy and self-advancement fantastic well thank you so much brendan for being on the podcast all that you did for boston that you're doing for massachusetts in the community um, it's super appreciated and it was great to be able to chat with you Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following the Albertus Project on social media at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.